I've spent my entire career trying to build relationships and build connections between people. That's why someone like Yuval Levin stands out to me in the conversation about politics in this country. He's been described as the most thoughtful conservative theorist of his generation. And while you've probably never heard his name, he's one of a few influential thought leaders in national politics. Levin is calling for a return to humanity in our politics, and that's why I wanted to speak with him. He says it's time to end the culture wars. And the reason for this isn't because his party just lost. In fact, Levin has been writing and speaking about this for years. It's because he says our souls are at stake and they need to be nourished. Even in a time of great frustration, we need not just to throw off what isn't working, but to build up what will work better. And that's a real challenge. And it's why I think it's important to see this, because it's very easy to think of this moment in America as a time to tear down. But I, I think that exactly for that reason, it is actually a time to build up. Dr. Levin served as special assistant to the president for domestic policy under George W. Bush and was also executive director of the president's council on bioethics. But despite his impressive resume and his reputation inside the Beltway, he says it's really the skills of a healer and peacemaker that we need now. What we need here is not policy expertise, but psychology. The capacity to resolve disputes and to understand dysfunction is just enormously important now. We need a lot of, uh, you know, middle children to uh, get involved in our politics. Levin is a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, a conservative think tank, and he's the founding and current editor of National Affairs. He's contributed to many magazines and journals, including National Review. Levin is someone that wants words like compromise to become the heart of our political system, the way as a historian of American politics, he says it once was. He's the author of The Fractured Republic, and most recently, A Time to Build, from family and community to Congress and the campus, how recommitting to our institutions can revive the American dream. If you found yourself bemoaning the gridlock in Washington or feel cynical about the party that you don't support, you know, the other guys, you'll find comfort in Levin's optimism. The more experience that I've had in Washington, the less cynical I've been about the people in Washington. There are reasons to be cynical about certain kinds of institutional forces, but on the whole, Experience gives you a sense of how things work and don't work and why. We talk about the role of fear and paranoia in the rhetoric of both parties and how it distracts us from real suffering and real solutions to problems like substantial mental health care reform that seems to be an afterthought to bickering about which cultural worldview is superior. We're not really having a lot of arguments that are about what government should do to solve problems. We're having a lot of arguments that are about whether and how the other party is the end of the world. If you want your kids to grow up in an America where real changes don't come at the expense of the party or minority that loses, then you'll really appreciate Levin's courageous call to compromise and to learn from each other, to fight fire, not with fire, as seems to be the only thing that makes the news, but with boring old water. The problems we have are not the, the fault of some outside force that's acting on us that needs to be pushed away. It's us, and it's all us. And so how do we approach it that way? I, I think that's where we can begin to solve problems. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is A Human Democracy. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. My guest today is Dr. Yuval Levin. He's the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the founding and current editor of National Affairs. He's also a senior editor at the New Atlantis and a contributing editor to National Review. Dr. Levin served as special assistant to the president for domestic policy under George W. Bush and also was executive director of the president's council on bioethics. One writer at the Brookings Institute described Dr. Levin as the most thoughtful conservative theorist of his generation. He's the author of The Fractured Republic, and most recently, A Time to Build, 
from family and community to Congress and the campus, how recommitting to our institutions can revive the American dream. He's published numerous essays and articles in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, among many others. It's my real honor to welcome Dr. Levin to the show today. A lot of people may not know your name, Dr. Levin, but I think in our town in Washington, D.C., they do know your name quite well. You're well known in the circles that you work in as a political theorist. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Keith. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. I'm curious if we can jump right into your book, A Time to Build. Um, Can you talk about why you wrote this book? Well, thanks. I I wrote it really to to better understand some of the dysfunction and breakdown that we see in our society now and to understand it using the tools that I have, which are the tools of political science and, and social theory, for me, in some ways, this book is uh, is the third in a trilogy, though I don't know if any reader sees it that way. Um, I, I wrote a book in 2013 called The Great Debate about the sources of the left-right divide uh, historically and, and looking at its origins in the end of the 18th century. Then in 2016, I wrote a book called, as you said, The, the Fractured Republic, which tried to take something of a historical view of the breakdown of social cohesion in America um, thinking about how we became so cohesive in the middle of the 20th century and then how that broke down over a half century or so that led us here. And this book, A Time to Build, is really about where that here is. It starts from the premise that we're living through a kind of social crisis um, that shows itself not just in partisanship and polarization, dysfunctional governing institutions, but even in people's personal lives as isolation and despair and alienation rising suicide rates and opioid abuse. Uh, These things can be looked at from a lot of different angles, but I think there's something to learn by looking at them from the point of view of of political theory and and social theory and thinking about how they relate to these broader questions. And I end up arguing that part of the story of that breakdown has to do with a loss of trust in institutions and with people seeing institutions not as there to shape them and mold them, but as offering them platforms to just take part in the culture war, ways to build their standing, their following, to express themselves. Um, And so it becomes harder for us to see these institutions as having any moral authority, as shaping us in some way, and as holding people with power responsible. Um, And that leaves us in a place where it becomes much harder for us to think about our society um, as, as something we're doing together. And it leads to a loss of solidarity. Right. Right. I I was particularly excited to read your book and to talk to you today, because in my field, which I, in in psychology, I think is, you know, in the social sciences clearly are, uh, regarded, I think as a progressive field politically, even though that's not part of the education, some would argue that it is, um, but it, it is, I think, progressive in its, in its ideas in a lot of ways for reform. I'm a social worker. And so my training, you know, I used to joke when I was in graduate school for social work that, uh, because uh, compared to a degree like a psychology degree, a social work degree really is training you. I always used to joke to be an advocate, um, and a social activist. And so um, so I do think politics, of course, politics get in, into everything. They are part of they're, they're an outflow of who we are, in fact. And, and I was excited to talk to you because as a therapist and someone who understands um, how families break down, how the how our minds can break down, how our body breaks down and all how all these things work together. Um, I felt that we've had an ob- we have an obligation as experts who know how to build uh, others, whether it's just about interpersonal neural connections or conversations which cause those connections which cause um, energy to flow in a way that's productive. I feel like we are obligated to talk about this no matter what our party affiliation is, whether we define ourselves as progressive or conservative. So I was really excited by your writing because your writing sounds very different than I think what people might hear on the major networks or cable news. It doesn't sound like it's top story uh, headline sort of writing news. And I wonder how you take that, uh, you know, yeah. if, if that's a compliment to you or. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. I think, first of all, that you're quite right, that there is, um, there's a way that the capacity to resolve disputes and to understand dysfunction is just enormously important now. We need a lot of, uh, you know, middle children to uh, get involved in our <laughs> politics. 
And it happens very often that I find myself in situations in our political life talking to policymakers or to people involved in politics. And I just think, you know, what we need here is not policy expertise, but psychology at some level. The right. breakdowns – I work in a, at, a, at a think tank, an institution that focuses on public policy. But I would say we've come to think in recent years that it's impossible at the moment to really have public policy debates. And mm-hmm. we don't have public policy debates. We're, we're in the midst of an election year where there really isn't a lot of policy because there's a breakdown that's happening upstream of public policy. Um, at the level where people think of themselves as part of a larger whole to begin with mm-hmm. and where solidarity comes from. And until we can address some of the problems that happen there, we're just not going to have policy arguments. Some of that is a, is, is a form of polarization. I would say we've reached a place where our two parties each thinks the other is the country's biggest problem. Mm-hmm. And that means that they can't focus on other problems. And as long as that's the case... We're just not focused on other problems. And right. so I think it's only right for people like me who normally think about public policy to try to broaden that out a little bit and just think about the state of the country and in a way that's not just about one team or another. Uh, and, you know, I'm on the right and I am on the right. I'm still conservative and will be. But I think that this is a moment where you have to think beyond team spirit and ask yourself, how can the institutions function so that we can even have a meaningful party politics yeah, and there's work to be done before that's even possible, frankly. Yeah, there's there's human work to be done. It sounds like what you're saying that even if we in your book, certainly in your writing, your work it talks about the institutions, and we're going to dive into what that actually means a little bit later. Um, but it, it really sounds like you know I I have to admit, and I've my my readers know this. I grew up as an evangelical Baptist in New England, which is a predominantly rural. I'm sorry, predominantly Catholic um, state, but it, also in a rural part of the state. So I um, grew up with that sort of identity. And when I hear people talk about um, the need for us to come back to sort of our center, our core, our values, you know, family values, I think you can correct me on this, you're the expert, but family values has been sort of a a buzzword for the right, um, for conservatives. And I've often lamented as, as someone who considers myself a conservative progressive um, lamented the idea that that that's not discussed and not pushed or, or on the platform on the left, that the idea of spiritual center and core and um, transcending, you know, ourselves into something bigger isn't something that seems to be on both yeah. sides. And uh, so what do you I, think? I, I very much agree with that. I, I, think, I think the same way about the idea of social justice and the right, where you know, the left and right are different. They they do that; those terms do mean something. But everybody cares about family, and everybody cares about justice. And I think there are distinct ways of approaching those questions from the left or the right that the country could benefit from. And <clears throat> to treat these issues as just belonging to the other party, one way or another, uh, first of all, is a mistake. Uh, but secondly, I, I think it really robs our society of some insight that could really help us address problems we have. And so I've, I've, I very much agree. Yeah, it's a lot. It ends up being a lot of noise and hot air and and stress and anxiety. I think that's something my colleagues have noticed an uptick in. You referred to the uh, uptick or epidemics. I think we should be clear when we talk about this: epidemics of suicide, epidemics of anxiety and depression that are happening that were happening before COVID. So we've had a crisis in mental health before COVID, and even before the polarization in politics, which I think would be a fascinating thing to talk with you about too. But um, you know, when I grew up in my house, my house was, like I said, rural Massachusetts. It wasn't it wasn't a hotbed of pl- political debate at our at our breakfast table. We talked about a lot of things, but it wasn't it wasn't like it is in our house because I guess we live in D.C. We talk about, the, you know, we're constantly talking about politics here, like many other people probably in this town. Um, but my parents voted independently. They were pretty consistently with Republicans because of their faith. They, they went with Carter because of his faith. Um and, but otherwise with with conservatives right up until the administration that you served in. Um, and, and interestingly, there was, you know, we were from Massachusetts, so there was, uh, we had a record player in the house. And one of the records we had was John F. Kennedy's inaugural address and you know, of all things. And so that was, you know, I distinctly remember that. How does your book, A Time to Build, compare with JFK's Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You, Ask What You Can Do For Your Country? 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's connected, but it's not identical. Um, Kennedy's inaugural spoke for a very confident nation at the height of, a, of an era of confidence and cohesion. We now find ourselves a much less confident and less unified country so that I think a, a message of unity and solidarity and confidence has to sound a little different. But the essence of his message, that we have to think about our obligations and our responsibilities before we think about our privileges and personal advantages is very much the message that I'm trying to convey in this book. For me, it has to do with seeing ourselves as shaped by some of the institutions that we're part of, from family and community and work and religion and civil society up to the institutions of our national politics, and asking ourselves in in key moments, in moments of decision, not just what do I want, but given the role that I have – what should I be doing in this situation as a parent, as a neighbor, as a teacher or a student, as a worker or, or an employer or as a president or a member of Congress? What should I be doing in this situation? I, I think of that as the great unasked question of this moment. And the people that really drive us crazy are the people who clearly are failing to ask that question. You see it a lot in Congress. You certainly see it uh, in Donald Trump. But you see it in corporate America. You see it in our religious institutions. Rather than ask, given the role that I have in this particular place, what should I do? The question tends to be more about the broader culture war or just personal advantage. And you find people just looking to be seen to express the right opinion rather than looking to do what's required of them in a particular situation. I think that's something like what Kennedy was calling Americans to but it's 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 not just about national solidarity and a commitment to the country. It's much more bottom up than that, and it's really about thinking: what particular individuals do I have obligations to, and what do those obligations involve? That just has become a harder question for all of us, and I think we need to force ourselves to ask it somehow. Yeah, it feels like you know, even though you're you're, you're saying it is hard to ask these questions, I want to say that it it actually. From my experience, it's they're they're actually simple questions. They're very simple, profoundly simple, and that's why they often get ignored and overlooked. They're profoundly simple. It's just just like just being here with one another, just showing up in some way without an agenda first, and then seeing what's left over. And with you know, once we connect, once once we see each other as um, we establish a bond in some way, then I can ask you for something. And you might say yes, you might say no, or you can ask me for something and I might say yes or no. But the, you know, it's like we're, we're just charging into someone's house and demanding that they give us all their money. It's Right. Yes. Yeah. And you know, part of it is that we, we don't often enough see ourselves as engaged in that interpersonal way. I, I find that I spend a lot of time with members of Congress in my work, and I've found over the years that they've become performative in a very bizarre way. They're always acting for an audience that isn't in the room. Uh, part of it is that there are always cameras on them, and that, that makes it very hard for them to think about what they're doing in an interpersonal way. Part of it is just that they think about their incentives as part of this larger culture war. And so if you watch a congressional hearing now, you're just watching people produce YouTube videos to use later. You're not watching people talk to each other about a public problem that they might be in a position to do something about. And I think in some ways, in a, in a smaller way, we, you see that kind of deformation in a lot of other parts of American life where people feel like, you know, as you're, as you're going through an experience with somebody, you're thinking, how is this going to look on Facebook or Instagram? And we've all become performers in a very bizarre way that just makes it harder for us to think about the context in which we're living our lives. And we have to remind ourselves of that because when we see that context, we're just more likely to treat each other better um, than when we're just thinking about other people as, uh, as props in a, in an act we're putting on for someone else. I think you're right. Yeah. I, I, what you just reminded me of is a, is a very stark, startling scene that, that we experienced as a family when we were all out in Arizona at the Grand Canyon. My last episode, I talked to a geologist, geophysicist. We're talking about geology. So that's a great episode. We talk about the Grand Canyon, but we're, we're at one of these cliffs. This was a different trip with, with my family. We're, you know, th- there's no guardrails. 
you know, I think in our country, we talk about a lot of, we have a lot of freedoms. There's in some ways, there's not a lot of guardrails. Some people yeah. think there's too many, but you know, we have a lot of freedoms. So at the national parks, it's these cliffs. You can go right up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you can just fall right in if you, if you weren't careful. And people are taking selfies and they're going mm-hmm. out on the ledge and backing closer and closer and closer. It feels like that's what we're doing as a country. We're not, we're talking at each other yeah. and then not realizing that we're slipping off this cliff. Hmm. Uh, it seems profound. So uh, yeah, I, I appreciate what you're doing and maybe we can talk in a little bit about how to break this down, how to, what are the actionable steps and in order to create the momentum needed, because I think they're simple things, but they're actually difficult because they have to happen in aggregate. They have to be happening at, at multiple layers um, of society. Yeah. Um, I read recently Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, Undoing Democracy. I thought it was fascinating. Um, I don't know if it's true, but it seems like a lot of books have been published during the last four years kind of on this topic about uh, about the spectacle of this presidency. Um, but he's, he specifically highlights the administration's war against not just red tape, but against what seems to be any idea or concept that can't be understood in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my take of, yeah. of Michael Lewis, who also wrote, by the way, Moneyball, great movie. Just watched that again recently. Great baseball movie. Um, my favorite story in The Fifth Risk was about how the Pentagon actually had to intervene <laughs> as he reported it, to stop the administration from destroying or trying to destroy the Department of Commerce, which a lot of people don't know what the Department of Commerce does. Uh, But in fact, it does a lot of, it stores a lot of data and statistics for our country to keep it functioning, including the National Weather Service. Like, I had no idea, right? And so the Pentagon started to hear that there was some attempt to break down this department and got involved to stop it because if the Military does not have accurate weather data. All of our military forces can't <laughs> do their operations. They depend on that data. Um, so, you know, the military, he points out, has this huge budget. And part of that budget is a public relations campaign to constantly remind people of how serving the military is honorable. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's something, it's heroic, right? There's valor, there's pride in the military, most taxpayers never hear the heroic stories of um, some of our friends and neighbors who are civil servants in the government at the EPA or at Commerce. Um, did did this war on civil service and civil administration start with this administration, Yuval? Well, the, you know, this is a this is a subject that's close to my heart, uh, having served in government in in the legislative and the executive branches, uh, and I, I have a lot of respect for people who really do the work of governance and for the need for experience and professionalism in government. But obviously, the tension between elected and appointed officials on the one hand and the kind of permanent civil service is not new. Um, to say that it didn't begin with Trump, I think, would be an understatement. I mean, in some ways, it began with George Washington, um, because the tension between people who are there because they got elected in some way, they're answerable to the public somehow, and people who were just there before and just keep saying, well, you know, we tried this 20 years ago and it didn't work, which I can tell you, having been a White House staffer, the, the, the civil service can be very frustrating that way, where you come up with some great idea and they say, yeah, they tried this in the Nixon years. I mean, you can try it again, but it was pretty dumb back then. Um, that's a lot of the kind of resistance you meet. There's also some, sometimes real political resistance, and I think that's part of what this administration is reacting to. But there's a balance to be struck. And I think the key is to see that ultimately the civil service is uh, there to serve the president and will do what he says. Uh, they're not the enemy. They're, th- there are tensions. There are areas of the civil service that can be politicized sometimes. But and, and by the way, in both directions, I mean, generally to the left in domestic policy and generally to the right in national security. Um, and you see those struggles in pretty much every administration. I think what's been different in this administration, and I, I should say I'm a conservative, but I'm very critical of the Trump administration and of the president in particular. Um, I think what you've seen in this administration is a much more intense sense of hostility from the outset on the part of the administration, of the elected and appointed officials, where the Trump people have tended to have less experience in government themselves um, than people in a, in the top layers of an administration normally would. 
And, and, and that's actually been their ticket in the door. That's the campaign strategy in 2016. That's right. They treat that as a good thing. And they even ran on it or are running on being an outsider even, even though. Yeah, and one thing it leaves them with is a sense that everybody who's not them is against them, um, which just actually isn't true. I mean, I think it's easy to believe that when you come in from the outside. But I, I would say the more experience that I've had in Washington, the less cynical I've been about the people in Washington. There mm. are reasons to be cynical about certain kinds of institutional forces. But on the whole, experience gives you a sense of how things work and don't work and why. And the, it, it begins with the president in this case. I mean, President Trump just hasn't been shaped by the institutions of our politics. And and he's the, the first president, really, who hasn't been at all. Every previous president – either was a senior military officer or much more commonly uh, was an elected official at some other level. Um, And so has seen government function, has a sense of what he's getting into and what the institutions are like. And this president just hasn't. And it has shown itself in a lot of ways. But I think one of those ways really is this war with the, the, uh, the civil service which is all treated as uh, as enemy combatants. Deep and state. It's just not true. And so it's not just that they've tr- that they've mistreated the civil service; they've also failed to use them. I think they've achieved less as an administration because they haven't seen that this government is at their disposal when when you're elected president and. When you spend all your time just fighting against it, at the end of that process, you haven't achieved anything. I've heard you say before that um, to to someone uh, that was talking to you, responding to your book, that you know they used the word dictator to describe Donald Trump, and a lot of people, I think, use that emotional. They have this emotional reaction to authoritarianism, and and, and right, it, it, I guess that's understandable. Yeah, um, you corrected this person and said. No, let's be clear. This is not a dictator. In fact, he's shooting himself in his in the foot because he's not actually effective at reforming government. He's not really using the levers yeah. that he could use. I think that's right. The, 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 there's a tendency to want to see people you worry about in politics as as being too strong and threatening. Donald Trump is weak, very weak as a president, and that's a problem. We actually need a strong presidency um, for our system to function. And I think the core problem with President Trump has been incompetence, not authoritarianism. We're paying the price for that now in the in the pandemic, where there are just things our government could do better if there were people at the top of the executive branch who uh, were better at running things. Right. Um, and so, you know, there are certainly ways in which President Trump has has shown himself to have a kind of authoritarian personality. But as an executive, the problem has been much more weakness than strength. I had a guest on my show, Dr. Richard Schwartz, who's a renowned family uh, therapist at Harvard, uh, specializing in family trauma. And we, we spoke about Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough. Um, and how this, um, in fact, he said basically a version of the same thing, that what we are seeing, and, and there's, there was an interesting article in the Post this past week, uh, it was actually uh, authored by Mary Trump about how the APA, American Psychological Association, which governs the sort of ethics of psychologists. Um, I think it was during Nixon's term, if I'm remembering uh, the reference that, you know, uh, there was rampant um, kind of celebrity sort of misuse of their, of psychology uh, in that they would be uh, diagnosing public figures and offering analysis of public figures. So the APA reigned that in. And, and as a result, pretty much muffled those of us in who are psychologists, at least um, and are shunned from commenting Mary Trump breaks breaks rank with that very clearly um, and was making the case that actually, you know, we've created this vacuum by saying that that you can't have people who are expert in seeing behaviors and witnessing them start to diagnose them. You make the point that Donald Trump is actually uh, the behaviors kind of show a weakness. And I think that's an important thing uh, when people um Think about what's going on. Often I get these questions from reporters or from average people just saying, what do you think is going on with this? And I just ask them to, to consider their own life and how it works. When, they're, when, when you see yourself acting in more unpredictable ways, are you doing that out of confidence or is it, or is it from fear? And usually it's from fear or some sort of insecurity. Yeah. Um, I, think I think it's another way you know, that, that – you need certain kinds of psychological categories to think about our politics now a little bit more than usual. 
we're not really having a lot of arguments that are about what government should do to solve problems. We're having a lot of arguments that are about whether and how the other party is the end of the world. Right. And there's so much fear in our politics now. It's just absolutely overflowing with fear. Most of that fear, when you really think about it, is pretty absurd. I mean, neither one of our parties is in any position to do very much, and neither one has done very much for some time. We have very, very narrow majorities that keep shifting. You know, in political science, we would describe this as a period of two minority parties. Um, And yet they each think that the other is on the verge of total victory and that this will mean the end of everything good about America. And that's a very bizarre way to approach our political life, which is really ultimately governed by a set of institutions that exist to compel accommodation between enduring factions. And we don't think in terms of accommodation now at all. We think of how afraid we should be of the other side and also of how, well, if the next election goes well, we can finally get rid of those people. And neither of these things makes any sense. Right, right. Well, to me, it makes sense from a limbic system perspective that when, because we talk often, often about vulnerability, that and in fact, when, when, we, when we are asked to compromise, like I'm, I've been a marriage counselor for 20 years. So this is one of the things that, and I, and I actually, I really wish that somehow we could, we could have more marriage counselors involved, literally in either, uh, you know, brokering some of these deals between people, uh, because we do this every day, and it's it's a limbic system thing. It's not rocket science. It's just our limbic system. We behave like mammals, which we are, like horses and dogs and cats. And when we're scared, we're going to do certain things. And when we are asked to do something vulnerable, at risk, um, like compromise or give something, um, we, we usually need very concrete things, like reassurance that we're not going to be taken advantage of, we're not going to be made a fool of, because humiliation for humans is kind of a, is sort of a life-threatening type of thing because we are social animals. We do need to, to be, um, to belong. And so if we're being threatened with uh, exile socially from our party, for example, which you hear in a lot of the rhetoric out there, that is, that is a, that is literally a life or or death kind of death kind of response. So I think it can be done. Um, And like you, I wish people were doing it and, and enacting it. I want to read a section from a time to build and ask you to respond a little bit to some of the language that you use. Um, You write, our souls and our institutions shape each other in an ongoing way. When they are flourishing, our institutions make us more decent and responsible, habituating us in exactly the sorts of virtues a free society requires. The exercise of these virtues, in turn, helps our institutions flourish. This is a virtuous cycle. But when they're flagging and degraded, our institutions fail to form us or they deform us to be cynical, self-indulgent, or reckless, reinforcing exactly the vices that undermine a free society. This is a vicious cycle. You use the word soul, Yuval, and, I, and I'm interested in that because that's the name of my show, The Soul of Life. And uh, I've talked about that word uh, more and more as, if, as I've done this, and it's been important for me um, to do that for different reasons. Why do you use the word soul? Because it can provoke ideas Sometimes uh, we want to do this intentionally, sometimes not, but about supernatural or religious ideology. It's, it's a very interesting word. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I, I, don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything religious or supernatural about the soul. I, I think the soul is the, is the essence of a person. Um, you can think of it as personality or character. It's a function of our consciousness, so it's obviously a function of the mind, but it's more than biology, or at least biology as we tend to think and apply it. And, you know, for me, talking about the the theoretical or philosophical underpinnings of our social life and our politics, often I find that it involves working to express some of the concepts of classical philosophy in, in contemporary English terms. And soul is an example of that. The Greek word for soul is psyche. And we have that word, too. Um, and we use it the same way, more or less. If you look up psyche in the dictionary, soul is one of the first concepts that will come up. Uh, you know, you think of the of, of Aristotle's important work on the soul. In Greek, it's just called perisyche. Um, so to say that you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist is to say that you, you help people with their souls. Um, so if you see the world in religious terms, you can see the soul in religious terms too. But if not, then not. And, and I think what, what that 
passage that you read says is that our institutions shape us, not physically, but in every other way, um, psychological and moral and spiritual. They shape our habits. They shape our expectations. They're how we come to be who we are. And so to say they shape our souls just seems a, a natural way to do that without resorting to unnecessarily kind of cold social scientific terms. Um, you know, we we see each other as souls, and I think rightly so. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. You you identify as a conservative, um, but you critique two major conservative institutions, the Catholic Church and the evangelical movement in America. Can you can you talk about why you highlight those groups? Yeah, I talk about those two in the book. I mean, I critique a lot of conservative institutions and a lot of progressive ones, too. Uh, I critique the Republican Party and the Trump administration. It, when I talk about the Catholic Church or American evangelicalism, I, I don't really take those to be conservative institutions. They're not fundamentally political. And to the extent that they become politicized, they're they're actually failing to do their core institutional work. And in fact, that's a key part of the critique that I make of them in the book, and of a lot of our institutions now, which is that they see themselves as players in the theater of our politics or in a culture war, rather than as performing some distinct institutional function in society. So that institutions that are supposed to be churches or newspapers or universities or companies instead just become fundamentally just another place to yell about politics. And it seems like everything is becoming that. That is certainly part of what's happened in some corners of American religion. Um, institutions that are supposed to shape people instead become platforms for yet more political expression. Um, that's part of the critique I make of, of particularly American evangelicalism in the book. But it's a critique that I would offer of, of a lot of the institutions of American Judaism too, my own religion. Um, they're also very politicized, in that case more to the left than the right. Um, and look, up to a point that's appropriate, I think religious institutions should sh- should have a role in talking to us about what a just society looks like and how we should treat one another. But when people's religious identities become indistinguishable from our political identities, then we have to ask ourselves whether something very profound has gone wrong here um, and whether we've lost the capacity to think about the institutions of our society in more than strictly political terms and therefore more than just divisive terms. I think that's a critique I would make of a lot of institutions on the right and on the left. And, you know, it's important not to shirk that when it comes to your own side and not just to point it out on the other side. Um, and so, you know, there are certainly instances in the book. I'm, I'm sure I'm more fair to the right than it deserves and less fair to the left than it deserves. There's no way around that. But the challenges we face now are very much bipartisan and cross-partisan, um, and it's it's worth seeing that. Right. I, I don't. I, I don't think we see too many. I mean, I think your your humility is is was well taken. It, it's it's human nature to to have biases about our ourselves. But I think to name those and say, well, this is where I'm coming from. This is who I am, and it's not my intent to be biased. So can you can you give me feedback? Can you tell me if this takes too much from you? Because that's not my intent. Right. My intent is to be integrated, to belong here with you and with what you know you need. I have needs, you have needs. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's very important when we think about politics to acknowledge that we all have some perch, some view of society. It, it's, it's not really possible to stand outside your own society and view it as an observer. But it is possible to learn from other people's vantage points. And you right. can only really do that by acknowledging your own. Well, it's humble, and it's it's back to the word I used earlier. It's 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 vulnerable to 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 learn is to be in a state of openness, open mindedness, um, open heartedness, even right. So it, it is it is something. It means that you and I can influence it, each other. I'm open to your influence. One of the strongest predictors, according to John Gottman, one of the leading researchers in marriage science, is um, whether predictors of divorce in heterosexual couples 
one of the longest, uh, strongest predictors of divorce in heterosexual couples is whether the husband, the male, is open to the influence of the female wife. And, and that's, you know, there's a lot of cultural stuff that yeah. comes into that, but it's, it's really, it's, it's, can you, or am I willing to compromise on key things? Not just like, okay, you can, you can uh, decorate the house, <laughs> no, right. to use a stereotypical um one, but you know, it's like, no, you actually control the important things. Like, like you have a place at the table and we could, I'm sure we could talk about, we don't have time to do this, but is Israel, Palestine to talk about having, bringing minorities, giving minorities a place at the table. Um, people who are extremists and, and obviously we have to deal with violence very differently in some way, but as a person who deeply, deeply believes that our, uh, you know, violence is a health issue. It is a health problem. And it can be treated as such and cured as a health problem. There's very simple things that we don't have to. You know, for example, we can we can be we can be sane and and careful in our in our justice system, but but also be clear that we can we're offering re- reform and support and education and resources and health services to people who are acting out. Um, yeah, giving them you a know, place. You, you talk about the language of minorities in this context, and I think it's very important because. One way to think about the dysfunctions of our politics now is that both of the major parties are minority parties at the same time, and neither one of them is really equipped to think of itself that way. So that you find a lot of people claiming ownership of the country and approaching the other side that way without recognizing that the other side can very legitimately see itself as claiming ownership of the country. Um, And it's a challenge. I mean, you know, it's possible for either party to think of itself as a majority or a minority. We've had right wing and left wing majorities and minorities. But this situation that we've lived in now for about 30 years where anybody could win any election and we're basically 50 50 is extremely difficult to handle. And it does raise all of these kinds of deeply psychological forces into our politics Right. Um, right. And I think it has a lot to do with that sense of, of just acknowledging that this isn't just ours, that we have yeah. to govern by compromising. Yeah. Anyone with parents knows that this happens with, with little kids. Uh, once they learn the word no, they decide mm-hmm. that everything is theirs. And, and you, you know, there's this sort of primitive uh, kind of way the mind works, but that as, as, at a young age, that's the way the mind should be working. And they struggle, of course, developmentally kids are struggling with the idea that they can integrate, this can be mine and yours. It's a, that's a difficult, that's an yeah. advanced sort of development thing. And when we are, you know, I write about this in, in some of my writing, that when we're stressed or depressed, there's a part of the brain called the thalamus, which is its job is just to decide, help us decide which inputs are relevant for us to act on and which are irrelevant and something we can ignore and relax about. And when we're stressed or depressed, the thalamus, that little gatekeeper, a little switch in the sensory switch in the brain, biases all the signals towards threat. And it says, no matter what you're saying to me, I'm going to view you as a threat. And and can't. it's like parents, how paranoia starts to sort of creep in. I'd like to talk about um, institutions, because that's something you talk about, recommitting to institutions. You use these words about having more faith in our institutions, letting them form us. Um, why should your message about the need for institutions being restored to conserve social order? I think that's language that you use. Why should that be accepted by a person of color who might see the preservation of social order? Um, and this is not just a person of color who may feel this way, but I'm speaking, you know, thinking yeah. of them in particular, they might see the institutions as, for example, slavery. Well, why would we want to preserve this country founded on slavery? The 1619 Project is making an effort to revise or reframe, I should say, um, how we think about our country's founding. Well, I think it's an enormously important question, and it's one that I take up in several places in the book. It's important to see that the case for institutions, first of all, that it's a matter of degree. There are times when our institutions are too strong and overbearing and can become downright oppressive. And of course, there are times when institutions are just literally oppressive and in the service of oppression, uh, including racial oppression. The, the term institutionalized racism is not a metaphor. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a reality in America. It has been and it continues to be. Um, but it's also the case that to advance any idea of justice and to fight the oppression that some institutions engender and sustain 
you need strong institutions on the other side. The case for stronger institutions is not a function of how great our institutions are, but of how much we need them. And it's particularly true for people who are disadvantaged in our society. I think people with money or power or any kind of privilege are going to be fine, whatever happens. People who need their rights protected or who need a way up or who need some support are people who really need our institutions to be strong and functioning. So that the temptation to just reject our institutions when they fail us is very strong and understandable. But ultimately, even in a time of great frustration, we need not just to throw off what isn't working, but to build up what will work better. And that's a real challenge. And it's why I think it's important to see this. It's why the book is called A Time to Build, because it's very easy to think of this moment in America as a time to tear down. But I I think that exactly for that reason, it is actually a time to build up. And we have a lot of resources in our history for thinking about how institutions can be constructive. In this sense, I really have a lot of concerns about the 1619 Project because I, I think it denies us the resources that our history can provide us for fighting for justice. There certainly is a history of injustice in our country. There is also a history of fighting that injustice And we need to see both because we need to see what needs to change, but also how. And the how depends on an understanding of our history that is fuller uh, and and more complete than that. And we should be careful not to deny that to ourselves and to the rising generation and just to throw away what we have rather than try to build on what's good about it to address what's bad about it. I think, by the way, that's, that's the sense in which I'm a conservative. I think being a conservative means looking for ways to build on what's good to address what's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me, let me see if I'm getting what you're saying that, that you would, you would kind of push back on uh, the 1619 project in, in a sense to, to caution, you would say, uh, wait, you know, it's, it's gotta be more, the conversation has to be more about um, calling out what's wrong or saying we've got to just change things or take down names or just, it's about changing the name, you know, of right. whatever we want to change. It's not just about that. Exactly. It's not just about that. It's about what do we do to actually improve things. And the answer to that can draw on a lot of our history. You know, one of the most powerful moments in the history of our society has got to be Martin Luther King standing on the mall and and saying not this country is garbage because of the way it's treated us, which he had every right to say, but instead saying, look at the Declaration of Independence and what it calls you to do and look at how badly you're failing to do it. That is a powerful way to help a society draw on its best self to address its worst self. And I think that's what we should try to do because we need more than just pointing out what's wrong. We need to be able to do something about it. Right. We, we need some way to have, you know, a, a, it's, it's a heavy lift to do this. We need all hands to do this. Yep. So we have to find ways to build each other up. Um, briefly, let's talk about deinstitutionalization. That's, that's a, uh, an issue that, that has impacted my life personally as a social worker starting in community mental health. Um, in Washington, D.C., very uh, hard hit uh, with epidemics of mental illness and substance abuse, crack cocaine um, uh, and heroin and opioids, of course, more recently. But um, the movement to deinstitutionalize people with mental illness began in the 60s, but was, you know, in community mental health was introduced and it was a needed reform. Um, some of the campuses, St. Elizabeth's, for example, here in Washington, D.C., among many others, people could probably know their uh, institutions. If you're in mental health, you would know what some of these are. They re- actually resembled college Ivy League campuses. They were so well-funded and um, uh, pastoral almost uh, in, in, in that sense. And so there was a, uh, and yet they were just sort of treating, or so I would say almost warehousing mentally ill and not necessarily moving people back into the community. So community mental health took root and was um, started in the 1960s um, basically closed by the 1980s, a lot of uh, hospitals were closing or sh- basically shuttered. And um, by the 1980s, it was, in my opinion, at least underfunded. So this this expansive mm-hmm. idea, we're going to move the money for uh, mental health out of hospitals and severe care into more preventative care. A great idea. Um, states are continuing to, uh, states continue to struggle with raising funds for adequate mental, mental health. Even inadequate mental health is is barely funded. So there's a shortage of beds in hospitals um, for, for uh, people that are suicidal, for example. Um, how did we en- end up here with this state of mental health care? 
Well, obviously, this is a subject that you'll know much better than I do. But I would say from my point of view, from the point of view of the political system, there was an intersection here of several different ways of thinking that led us down this road. I mean, I think part of it was a kind of um, ideological commitment to an idea of the individual that emphasized independence above all and tried to really play down dependence as a fact of human life. Um, and that also was anti-institutional in a fundamental way, which if you look at the at the culture of the United States in the 50s and 60s, there's a very powerful anti-institutional strain. And it was also true that uh, institutionalization as a mode of treatment was overdone, dramatically overdone. Um, and so I think that it was a, at first a solution to a real problem, but it went much too far and very, very quickly because it coincided with various threads and strands in our culture and then also with a desire to spend less money, especially at the state level. There were some people who resisted that um, on, on all sides and all parties. Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, very much resisted deinstitutionalization um, for reasons that I think later came to look uh, came to look rather wise. Though I, I mean, it was driven by his secretary of health and social services. But the, that, the, the commitment to reduce spending combined with a commitment to independence led us to a place where we just came to think about mental illness in a, in a way that downplayed the, the capacity of institutions to provide real services. And we've gone too far, I think much too far. Um, it wouldn't be easy to come back. I think you'd have to have a kind of revolution in how we understand mental illness. Um, and again, you don't want to be careful about going too far with that um, mm -hmm. because providing services in the community does a lot of good for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, there's just some people whose condition is such that it can't serve them. And yeah. that, that kind of subtlety is hard to achieve in public policy. Right. Yeah. The debate, as I've heard it often framed, often devolves into this um, idea that, well, you're giving people a handout and they're not going to really give anything back. And nobody deserves a handout unless they're going to give something back, unless they're going to earn it. Or, you know, so the sort of work reform or um, welfare reform, the idea that there's, well, you know, the, and, and to your point about the um, the rhetoric that that we use, you know, some of the images are still lasting with people. The the ways we paint our enemies, the way people describe the problem, lasts and it leaves a lasting impression on people. And some of them may not be based on facts. Um, I I wonder if you're willing to talk about how the marriage of conservative beliefs and progressive beliefs works in real life. Um, I was interviewed, Yuval, by a reporter once who asked me. Uh, about Kellyanne Conway at the time when she was working for the White House, and uh, she was she is married to a, a person who's publicly outspoken and really working against her boss's work and her work. Um, what is it like? Um, in as much as you're willing to share here about your own marriage, uh, you're a conservative, um, and, and how does it work in in life with someone who may not be as conservative as you? Well, it's a great question. You know, I, I mean, the, the Conways themselves are actually both conservatives. Uh, and George, is, if anything, he's the one I know, uh, is more conservative than, than Kellyanne Conway. And it's because he's a conservative that he's a critic of Donald Trump. And I feel the same way. But the broader question is really an important question because I certainly think it's more than possible for people who disagree about some political issues to build a life together and to to love and respect one another, whether that's within a family or within a community or a society. Um, political differences don't mean that we can't live together. And when they come to mean that, then our society can't function because political differences are not going away. Um, and so one reason I worry about the integrity and the strength of our institutions beyond politics, from family to community to civil society, the professional world, the academy – these are institutions that need to not be about politics. They can be places where people who might disagree about public policy can still agree about a lot of other important things and work together towards some important common goals. And, of course, the institutions of our politics themselves are intended to channel and direct disagreement, uh, to compel accommodation. They're based on the premise that we're going to disagree and these things can be done in a spirit of friendship, too, and a spirit of solidarity, even even love. Um, I, I think what's key <clears throat> is to see that, the, that, that no one has a monopoly on how to solve problems. 
And so, you know, conservatives and progressives do start out from different places. And I think there's a tendency when, when we think about political questions, conservatives tend to think about problems in terms of order and disorder. Um, and progressives tend to think about them in terms of oppressor and oppressed. Both of these are valuable ways to think about the country's problems. They're also both inadequate. Um, and to see that and recognize that the people you disagree with have a point, that they're not trying to destroy things, they're trying to improve things, it's just the hardest thing there is in politics. Um, and, you know, I think it's why it is important to make sure that not everything is politics, to see that we're working together even when we disagree about uh, uh, left and right questions. And it is certainly possible, and frankly, it's fairly common to find within a family, within a marriage, differences about politics that don't amount to fundamental disagreements about what's good and evil or about how to live a good life. Um, and, you know, I think living that way can also help you have the right perspective about politics, which is that it is very important, but it is not everything. It's not everything. No. And, and, and that's what made me really lean forward kind of here as I'm listening to you. Um, just I want to kind of give you this real feedback. Like, I, I think what happens when people say things like you, you said, um, you know, that that you're not coming from a place of all the answers or expertise or exceptionalism. You don't think that you're better than I am. In fact, you're quite aware that you're probably not, right? I mean, you didn't quite say it that way, but it, but it's sort of anything that comes close to saying that, like, look, I don't think I have it. Um, I need you. I need you actually. And you're not quite saying that to me here, but you know, there's a subtext and I, this is usually what we spend our time teaching people is that, you know, we, we typically just forget about that piece and go right to the, what we think is important, which is here's what I need you to do. Um, it's anxiety. That's just simply put, it's just anxiety driven behavior. Um, and if you can relax and actually say who you are, be who you are, well, it pulls the other person, it pulls me towards you. Um, and then I, then I'm just interested in, in what you have to offer. And you know, you don't have to sell me anything at that point. I'm already sold. I'm sold on you. It's not really about, um, what you're, what you're peddling. I just, I'm interested in you. Um, and of course, when we're interested in others, we tend to be more interested in ourselves as well in, in, in ways that are important. Um, so Chris Evans, this is a little interesting sort of side topic, but Chris Evans, also known as Captain America, is uh, using his Hollywood fame for, he's been critical of Donald Trump. He's used his fame uh, in an outspoken way. In 2017, he started a organization called A Starting Point. Create a place for dialogue. Something that sounds like is similar to what you're asking for. He's very on maybe the opposite end of professional work um, as Captain America. But I wonder, do we have to be Captain America to do this work? He's he's actually become well respected on Capitol Hill. He basically provides a forum for people. It's like a no spin type of thing, but he actually seems to really mean it. He's really trying to get people to come at topics in a way that's concise and speaks from their heart. Uh, as opposed to, as you point out, speaking about the other person's problem and and defining the other person, just trying to get people to talk about where they are and get rid of the hot air. Um, do we have to be Captain America to do this work? Well, no, but uh, I, I I do think that we have to see the nature of the problem and that that should lead us to think about our country more from the bottom up than from the top down. So that I don't think you can be hopeful about America if you look at the country from the top down. There's just not a lot going on in Washington that should lead you to think every, everything's going to be fine. But if you look at the country from the bottom up and you start with human relationships and you build up to institutions and communities and build that way toward a sense of, of, of solidarity that can be national – then, first of all, there is more cause for hope because there's there are a lot of good things happening in America at that level. And secondly, it also is possible for each of us to have something to do. Um, if you ask yourself, how am I going to fix Congress? Most people don't have anything to offer on that front because even if they've got a great idea, you know, it, it, they're not in a position to do much about it. When you ask yourself, how do I help my community be a little better? Most people do have something to offer. Um, you can, we can see problems more clearly. We can imagine solutions. We can find some people who agree and do something. And 
that can add up not only because those solutions can build up, but because that's how we change our attitudes. That's how we come to think more in the in terms of we and us, and this is our challenge together. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Israel. I came to the U.S. when I was eight years old. I became an American citizen when I was 19. And I took the oath uh, at a courthouse in Newark. And after the, 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 the judge who had administered the oath gave a little talk. And I thought, this is going to be, you know, some great patriotic, you know. What he said was very short. He said, from now on, you can't talk about this country in terms of they and them. You have to talk about it in terms of us and we. And that was it. And my thought then was, well, I don't know, that's a missed opportunity. You could have said more than that, talk about Lincoln or something. I have gone back to that little speech more than anything I've, I've heard in my life. Um, because so much of the challenge we have now is about talking about America in terms of they and them instead of us and we. And to begin from us and we is just easier at the level of the interpersonal but when you get in that habit at that level, you can also get better at doing it at a national level. And that's just so much of what we need is to see that the, the problems we have are not the, the fault of some outside force that's acting on us that needs to be pushed away. It's us and it's all us. And so how do we approach it that way? I, I think that's where we can begin to solve problems. It makes sense. It's, it's appealing to me at many levels. Um, and it seems to me that you're the kind of person, Yuval, that would belong in a Biden White House, for example. I mean, would you accept a job in that if, if, if he ends up winning the election? No. Look, I think, our, I think a president needs to, be, needs to be surrounded by people who share his vision. And I am a conservative. Um, I certainly wish our president well, whoever that is. But um, – I I didn't I, I wouldn't have even wanted to work in this White House, which is full of Republicans, because I don't share this president's vision and attitude and approach. Um, and I, I would feel the same way if uh, if if it were Joe Biden. But um, you know, is, there are ways to be helpful without being on the inside, and that's part of what people like me do in the think tank world and in the public policy world. And right, I'll certainly right. be doing that. Let me let me ask you a sl- slightly different question. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, um, but would you, is, is there a person, do you think people who, who are affiliated with a party um, or have, you know, have connections to institutions who are affiliated with the party, should they try to do this sort of like, um, you know, sort of ambidextrous thing? Is that one of the possible solutions to say, look, you know, like we, you, you mentioned the Lincoln Project, I think, I mean, it seems like those are people, some of them are coming out saying, look, we're going to do the American thing. We're going to vote against our party here. We're going to, you know, and, and it seems like you're calling people to do courageous things, which is very risky. They're very prone to criticism. They're, they could be defunded if, they're, if their career is built on an ideology that, you know. Um, yeah, I think you've got to be willing to break the bounds of party and not to allow those to be the bounds of your own involvement in the life of our country. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm from a little circle of people on the right who've been doing that for the last four years and sure there might be some consequences, but, um, it's not the end of the world. We're all in a place where we can handle it. And, um, I think that's enormously important, but you know, you should only, if you're going to work for a president and look, I think it's because the president deserves people who share his vision. He got elected and that means he's there to advance a particular vision there's certainly some Republicans who will have no trouble working for Joe Biden. Um, and, I, you know, I would guess that he'll have some Republican me- members of his cabinet, as most presidents have had. President Trump did not, but President Bush did. President Obama did. Um, and and I think that's a, a very good and noble thing. Um, and so, you know, there's a balance to be struck between advancing your your own vision and ideas and helping the country more broadly. And I think a lot of that is about enabling compromise and accommodation. Compromise is more about what you gain than about what you give. Um, it's about people with different priorities finding a way to help each of them get what they care about most by giving up something they care about less. And our institutions are designed for that, but they're not doing that very well now. I think finding ways to make that more achievable um, is what all of us who are engaged in the policy world need to be doing. Right. 
Well, it's important work that you're doing. I really appreciate you're doing it and it's exciting. And I think it's, uh, there's a lot of hope to, to talk to people like you and to know that there's others like you doing this. And I hope people read your book. It's called A Time to Build. Uh, tell people where they can hear you speak and, and get, get in touch with you, get your books, uh, other things you want to mention. Yeah, I work at the American Enterprise Institute. You can find us at AI.org, and uh, everything I do is there, so um, pretty easy to find in that sense. And really, Keith, thank you for this conversation, and thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.